Welcome to the Black Fashion History Podcast, the place where we highlight and celebrate the contributions of Black people past and present to the fashion industry. I'm your host, Taniqua Russ, and shout out to you for joining me for another week. And if you're a new listener, I want to tell you welcome, and I so appreciate you tuning in. I hope you had an opportunity to go back and binge on all the episodes so you can catch up with the class. So today, we're going to step into part two of my conversation with Rachel Fenderson, who is a designer, a curator, a historian, but most notably, she is the lead authority on designer Jay Jackson. And last week, we chatted all about Jay Jackson's beginnings, where he was born, a little bit about his family background, as well as some of the work that he was doing in Paris. Now in part two, we're going to pick up the story and Rachel is going to give us insight on why designer Jay Jackson left Paris, as well as the couture label that he headed in America. And we're going to talk about auto agency, a term coined by Rachel herself, which just means documenting your own history. We talk about why it's an important practice to get into the habit of doing now and how it can help us remove barriers and combat against the concept of erasing not just in fashion history but in history as a whole. So you want to start a podcast right? I know it can seem really daunting and complicated to have to think through how to record it or how to edit it and even how to upload it but don't worry about any of that. I'm about to give you the only tool you need to create an A1 top of the line podcast. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can even start making money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Now, all you have to do is download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm, that's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M, to get started today. Now, let's get back into our content. I didn't, I didn't 100% realize it. I'm probably really looking at his portfolio and going through the documentation and writing down dates and looking to cross him to see what fell where, you know, and creating really a bibliography. Uh, excuse me, a biography detailed outline. And that's when I saw that in, sometime in like 1972, he created a menswear collection for Playboy International. But oh, I mean, wow. right? But in 1972, he was still in France. And I think at that time he was working for Dior. <laughs> I was just like, when and where did you have the time to do any of these things? This is amazing. And you are amazing. You know, so he was working for both American brands and French brands while living in France. So I know he kind of started out doing costume design and then having his own collection with the money from that helped him to be able to go to Paris. What happened with his own collection and his own work? I know he's been doing great things with all these other designers overseas, but what about his own designs? Okay, so in the year of 1970, while Jay is producing and releasing his collection for Jean-Louis Charrier, he also releases his own collection. (laughs) This is just amazing. Just think, I'm like, where do you find the time to do this? Okay, so he releases his own collection. 
his collection actually shows at what we would now uh, know today as the Mona Bismarck. There, but at that time in the 1970s, it was called the American um, Center for Cultural Art, right? And that's when he was able to release his collection uh, with five of the American designers, uh, where they were releasing and showing their collection. This would have been in October 1970. Her collection was picked up by like major fashion boutiques that were, you know, really high-end fashion boutiques at the time. And it sold and it did really well. But I can tell you, there were some hard experiences that Jay had. And this part of the information actually came from one of Jay's former partners that I met in Paris. His name is Stephen Kensey. And, um, you know, I asked him questions. I was like, you know, tell me about Jay in Paris, what his interests are like, what did he, what did he like to do? Um, you know, he said, Jay loves to coach, he loves to go to movies. Like, that was like his favorite thing. And then also, he explained that Jay, one of the reasons why Jay left Paris is because he had a hard time dealing with the racism in the Oakland House. And he just said, you know, Rachel, Jay, and this is in his opinion, he's like, I feel like Jay is just as good as Eastern Lavant. Um, and it was just really, it just, it, he said it was just the time. It was just the time period. Meaning if it was a different time, then perhaps he, he, his trajectory and his career and his path could have continued to excel. Right, like his star could have continued to rise instead of um, Jay feeling like he has to leave and go home because he was just tired of dealing um, with the racism that he was experiencing. So he ends up leaving Paris, um, coming back to New York, and while he was in New York, Jay ends up taking over uh, Pierre Cardin's American market, and he's the one who is producing all of Pierre. So Pierre Cardin, you know, another. French Ocouturier decides to release the American market. And who's the one who's head of releasing that market? That's Jay Jackson. And so, like, his designs were Jay Jackson for Pierre Cardin. And the fascinating thing about that is, you know, I have um, in the portfolio that I will show you one day, I have a tech pack of Jay Jackson. And it's Jay Jackson's name. But usually that kind of information is, like, internal information that no one ever sees. Um, it's just like, King Jay Jackson for Pierre Cardin. It's a sketch. It has all the details, the cost of the garment. It has like a little sample of heavy cloth, which is what you would typically have in a tech pack. And then shortly right after that, on the very next page of this portfolio, you see cook pages from Harper's Bazaar, from Vogue, from Women's Wear Daily, where Dee Jackson is sharing out images of Pierre Cardin's American market, and he's signing his name on those images. And for me, I was so blown by that because that was a great way of giving himself a term that I coined in my thesis, auto-agency. If they did not do that, it would have been lost. Who would have known that he was the one who designed those pieces uh, for Pierre Cardin's American market? You know, then they would go on to work for Benson and Partners. And when he worked for Benson and Partners, he actually um, was releasing a collection, a divisional collection that ended up showing at um, the Four Seasons as well as the Plaza Hotel. You know, those are two key, like, right? <laughs> and those are like two key New York City locations. Oh, it's funny enough, one major key thing that I should have said early on, Jay Jackson's name is actually Eugene Jackson. That is not something that is widely known. That is something I found out throughout my research. Um, and that's kind of the reason why a lot of people might have a hard time finding research on Jay Jackson, especially mm-hmm. if they're trying to look at his schools and, like, dates and things like that. His name is Eugene Jackson, and he didn't legally change it until, like, the mid to late 60s. And Why? The Empress of Seventh Avenue, Eleanor Lambert, convinced him to change his name to Jay Jason Jackson. I mean, it's kind of genius. She thought that that name sounded more fashionable. And phonetically, 
it would be more interesting for people. So what Jay decided to do was to, his, his initial name is, you know, Eugene, and then Jackson spelled J-A-C-K-S-O-N. That is how you spell Jay Jackson's birth name, uh, you know, the name that his mom and his dad gave him. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then um, his, his uh, the phonetical way that you would spell it is J-X-O-N. And so he decided to keep the sound of Jackson. Um, but he went ahead and he recently changed his name to Jay Jason Jackson. And that became his fashion name. And that's how the world knows him today. That is a really interesting piece of information. And I want to kind of go back to something that you said and about giving your own self-agency by mm-hmm. kind of recording your history. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important as we think about not only Jay Jackson, but other designers of, you know, way back when that there's limited information on because they were not well documented. And so I think that's important for designers today, black designers especially, to, and now it's a little bit easier because you have things like social media and anyone can kind of like, you know, throw up a website or whatever, but it is really important to document your life and your work so that years from now, you know, this information can be out here and people can know that, like like Beyonce said, I was here. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like Beyonce said, I was here. No, you're absolutely right. And when you think about it, look at someone like Jay Jackson. He had over 50 newspaper articles written on him during his lifetime. And many of them were in Europe, across Europe. So in the Netherlands in Spain, in France, you know, they're all written in these different languages. I can actually send you some, too, so you can get to see it. Um, the thing that's super interesting about that is that someone like him, who has so many articles written on him, both in Europe and America, was erased from fashion history. That's, that's crazy. crazy. Isn't that crazy? Just, find, just think about all the brands I was just telling you that he worked for. Those are just the brands. That's not even mm-hmm. his costume design history, right? So when you think about that, it, it almost feels like startling. Like it kind of gives me chills just to think about how who's in charge of the history, who's in charge of the narrative, and how can we find ways to combat that? This is how. Designers, to me, are responsible first for themselves. You have to protect your own legacy 100% of the way, which therefore means, yes, throwing up websites, making sure that you, you have your own biography written, Maybe you can even take, like, voice recordings of how you felt when you were producing your own collection, what you were thinking, what was your mood, why you chose this, who's your muse, you know, you know, different things that can help someone in the future. Like, for instance, if you're gone, that someone else can help to carry on your legacy for you by the information that you gave. So, like, for me, when I produced, um, when I wrote my thesis and then I, I did my exhibition, it was, of course, 100% based on a lot of the content that I researched, uh, my 20-plus interviews, <laughs> flying to different countries to meet different people, <laughs> right? But also, because of Jay Jackson's portfolio, I decided that what I was going to do is make sure I tell his story the way that he had it documented and preserved. I wanted to make sure that I gave agency back to him how he wanted to be presented. And uh, there are a few things within that, right? So, for instance, uh, Jay Jackson, something that I came across, he didn't particularly enjoy being called a Black designer, and here's why. He understood that it was a form of othering when it was on the main stage. Now, if it was done in safe spaces, which is something that I define in my thesis, what safe spaces are, I'll give you an example. Ebony Magazine, 
faith-based. Essence, faith-based. Historical black colleges and universities, faith-based. What's not faith-based? Vogue, not a faith-based. That's just to be quite honest. Harper Bazaar, not a faith-based. Why? Because their magazines were riddled with racist acts and history that is not really welcoming of people of color, right? Preventing models from being in magazines. Um, not wanting to renew Richard Avedon's contract because he specifically chose to shoot models who are of color. <laughs> you know, Richard Avedon is like this famous fashion photographer, but these are the things that were at the root of some of these places. So it's kind of like on the main stage, and, and they are considered the main stage, right? It's on the main mm-hmm. stage. They never call designers who are white, white designers. To level the playing field, they shouldn't call designers who are black, designers who are Asian, designers who are Indian, by their ethnicity or nationality before um, them being a designer. They're just designers, you know? It's, um, it's, it's like a way of othering. And it's almost, it comes so naturally. And I find myself consistently correcting when this happens, right? I feel like in safe spaces, perfectly fine. Black History Podcast, perfectly fine. <laughs> if this is a safe space, honestly, in other forms, it's not okay. You know, and that's it's something that I argue in my thesis, and I call it all the way out. I have no problem challenging the narrative because my goal is to level the playing field always. And to give an example, I gave articles as an example, right? Ebony Fashion Fair. They, um, over, I would say over, hmm, maybe like over like four or five years, they took different garments on the road to um, raise money for scholarships to students, right? And mm-hmm. uh, black sororities and fraternities and other black organizations would put on these fashion shows. And in the fashion shows, the garments would be Yves Saint Laurent, Dior, Jay Jackson, uh, Stephen Burroughs, and other designers, right? Like uh, the gamut was full of these the different um, garments. Now, when they referred to Jay Jackson, Jay Jackson, Stephen Burroughs, and a few others were referred to as black designers. But why is that perfectly okay? Because Ebony Magazine, Jet Magazine, Essence Magazine were all forms, especially combat the negative stereotypes that were being presented about African Americans in America, but also to show how we um, would like to have, to have our own discourse about our own people and how we would like to be displayed, right? And to tell our own stories and to be in charge of our own narratives. So, in those instances, it's perfectly fine. In instances of Vogue, it's not okay. Harper's Bazaar, it's not okay. Elle magazine, it's definitely not okay. You know, those are not safe places. And that's due to their historical background. But go ahead. What were you going to say? I was going to say that makes complete sense. And I know I've heard of some other designers that feel similarly or the same way. I know Arthur McGee was one who was very vocal about not being identified in the same way that you've explained as a black okay. designer or um, or not being othered in that sense. Like it's very important that fashion accepts or fashion takes in people of color as they would, you know, others instead of placing them in this box or this minority box and that kind of furthers the marginalization. And so she was also very anti-black designer in that sense. Right. And right. I and I understand that, especially given the time and like you said, these not being safe spaces. Right. Even even his own school. You know, shout out to FIT, but you know, let me just be from <laughs> Because he said it, right? So it's not you know, it's not like a rumor or a story, you know, it's 
on the Metropolitan Museum.com, you can find this actual interview where he says this very thing that I'm about to say. This is part of the reason why, um, like, even my own school, Parsons. Parsons and FIT, those are not historical black colleges or universities. They have not earned the right to call anyone a black fashion designer. Let me just be very candid. Have not earned the right. Why? Because it wasn't necessarily 100% a state right. But look at why he he um he quit that school. And he quit that school because he said a teacher told him that someone like him would never make it far in the fashion industry because he's black, i.e. not a safe place. So I'm just going to be very candid about it. Well, I want to switch gears just a little bit and talk about your recent exhibit. And I know this is not your first exhibit on Jay Jackson. You've done a few others. So what makes this one at the Queens Historical Society different from the previous ones that you've done? Sure. Um, so what I can tell you is that um, the other two exhibitions that I did, outside of locations, um, is also how the content was presented, right? And um, obviously for the first one, because in France, um, the French, from my understanding, like to see, like, actual documentation and um, the ephemeral documents is something, you know, the more like tangible things that, that that feels like you can feel it right in front of you. So that's how that exhibition was displayed, um, where I displayed a lot of documents and a lot of my research from um, G. Jackson's portfolio and books, things that I was able to find, that was on display for people to see um, with, you know, information that they can read and things of that sort. Um, then we move on to my second exhibition where I did at the Queens Public Library, which is located in South Carolina, Queens. I specifically chose that one because I wanted the people from the community um, who grew up in Jay Jackson Street to be able to see this person, um, who's from where they're from, and they can know that their dreams are valid too. And that exhibition was actually titled uh, Jay Jackson Fashion Designer, Lake Fourier, Costumer, 40 Years of Fashion Design Brilliance. Um, within that exhibition, uh, I built a lot of the documents through Illustrator and Photoshop and created um, a 24-panel spread um, where I displayed his life um, biographically. Um, so from beginning to end, and it followed his trajectory from, you know, becoming huge in New York City, then going to Paris and taking over Paris and also working in the city, coming back um, to New York City fully, you know, engaging himself within the fashion industry, then moving to California when he was producing a lot of costume design there, working for television and film, and then subsequently um, when he passed. And one of the ways that I also displayed that exhibition slightly differently is that I did include a few images and documentation um, from Jay Jackson's portfolio along with my thesis. So that would have been the final product so that people can see, okay, well, this exhibition was built, of course, with a 24-panel spread, but also there was content um, that showed that this came from some former research. So that brings us to present day, uh, today. One of the reasons why this exhibition is um, completely different from the others is that I have like full autonomy in terms of how I wanted to um, display the Japanese information, how I wanted to, um, uh, visitors to experience it and to feel it and to be fully immersed in his fashion world. Um, so one of the things that I made sure to do was to include things for audio learners and visual learners. You know, I realized not everyone learns the same way, right? And so when you first enter that tradition, um, the other thing, other key little Easter eggs that I can give people is that I um, chose specific type of paint for the wall, right? So like, we completely 
revamp that entire exhibition space that I was given. Um, I chose like Parisian taupe. Taupe is one of Jackson's favorite colors. Of course, it's chose Parisian for the fact that it, um, I guess it's color that that is popular in Paris. Um, and that's for one of the rooms. That's for the California slash New York room. Outside room, I chose Exo taupe. Um, this is to be slightly different from the Parisian room. And I chose like um, satin trimming to line the doorways and to line any form of trimming and probably to give it like a French-esque feel. And when you, go, when you actually enter into the actual exhibition in the first room, it's completely black, uh, pink. And part of the reason why I did that is um, it's just that's supposed to be the New York slash Paris room. When I was in Paris, they completely reminded me of New Yorkers so much so. Um, the way they're being dressed and like personality, uh, it's just that they spoke a different language. So what I decided to do is for any content New York related, I put stencil, brick stencil on the wall. And then any New York and any content that was Paris related, I utilized um, a tree of life stencil. It was very it was beautiful. Uh, and, and I used um, the cut paint to offset. So when you see images from it, which I'll share with you as well, uh, you'll get to see that. And then from there, I built a lot of content in the panels utilizing canvases to discuss the Jackson's life. Um, for his actual garments and his images, I chose acrylic panels to display that. I thought it would be more beautiful on an acrylic panel with the images superimposed on the back. And I actually blew it up and made them really huge so that the uh, visitor can get to see like the finite details on within these canvases. Um, and then when you walk through the exhibition, this is also part of my research, right? Like a lot of the panels that you're going to read, that's um, interviews that I built and then subsequently created a story. So one of the things that you will find as part of the research is Jay Jackson's favorite song by Bobby Taylor and the Vancouver's, which is called um, The Jamama Nobum. And I chose headphones from the 1970s. Like I, I, looked, I did research on, you know, what headphones were super popular in the 1970s, like what brand? So I chose the cost brand, I, and I utilized the headphones, and I actually purchased the original um, record player because that's what they would have been using during that time, and a vinyl. And I, I left it there for the visitors to actually engage. So I'm more of a person who I would prefer for the visitors to be able to touch and feel. Um, I'm not, you know, someone who's like, no, don't touch. <laughs> like, that's not my personality, you know. Sometimes you go to museums, they don't want you to engage. So my exhibition is interactive, right? You know, I want you to put the headphones on. I want you to press play on the record player and listen to the music that's there. And then I also want you to read the content because I want you to be fully immersed in his uh, design process. Because one of the things I talked about is, is this song was his favorite song. He would play it over and over again. And he would design all the way to like 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. And he was a late night designer, similar to me <laughs> as well. And from there, you experience New York. You experience Paris. You learn his story. One of the other things I decided to do is to leave a bunch of books um, in one of the display cases, um, including my thesis. But these books are there for the readers to, to, or excuse me, the visitors to be able to look up on their own. But it gives them some context. Like, for instance, I left the green book in there from 1940. And the green book is a traveler book specifically for African-Americans mm -hmm. to have what? Safe spaces that they could stay, that they could visit, that they can eat when they're traveling across the United States. One of the reasons why I left the Green Book there is because there was a section about New York City. Now, most people, when they think of North America, they don't think of North America the same way they think of the Jim Crow South. You know, I also refer to North America as the Jim Crow North. You know, it, it maybe how racism was implemented was slightly different, 
but in many ways it was very much the same very much the same and it's just something that you know reading a little bit more about then you understand like even like redlining where people get to live and eat and their economics and what schools you go to like all of these things are determined by race and therefore there's the color line and that's the barrier um to entry and that's the blockade and that will prevent you from going to specific schools. This, when you're experiencing this exhibition, it's built on so many different canvases and acrylic, and then you get to have the headphones um, to listen to the music. And then most importantly, because the exhibition is actually titled Jay Jackson, 40 Years of Fashion Design Brilliance, Past, Present, and Future, I do explore his past. I look at how his present um, informs his future, and it's ultimately what became of his future, right, at the same time. I'm so big on designers protecting their legacy that I decided to interview designers and scholars and other people who are consultants in the fashion industry to not only preserve Jay Jackson's history, but to help preserve their own legacy by bringing them along to include them in the exhibition. But how long is it on display for? Until December, December 29th. Okay. Oh, well, I have more than enough time to get to New York. Yes, come to New York, come meet me. (laughs) In person. Yes, I'd love to. I'm yeah. I'm definitely gonna plan a trip to New York this year, and I'm making sure that I stop by Queens and check out this exhibition. I would be beyond ecstatic. So one of the things that I decided to do, it's an anthology film about it is about them and about their background and how they started in fashion and their interests, but it's also them experiencing J. Jackson's portfolio for the first time. So I'm recording, like, their live reactions to these reactions. Oh, that, that was probably really cool. Oh, wait till you see it. <laughs> you know, of course, I, I love it, but I, I love it because they're so excited. And for me, like, in this way, it gives me chills that it's, like, they get to see themselves represented. That was something that was so powerful for me, like, seeing them see themselves represented. You know, and, and then they know that what they're facing is possible. Your dreams are valid. Yeah, so that's how this exhibition is. <laughs> that's it. Well, is yeah. there anything else you'd like to add about um, your exhibition or anything else you have coming up that you'd like to share with the audience? You can also share with them where they can find you. We have tons of people that listen from New York, so also please share how they can get to see your work on display. Okay. Um, so, okay, okay, so I'll share with that first. So, of course, my name is Rachel Henderson. Uh, my website is rachelhenderson.com, and my at is actually Rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L-E-X-T. Um, and you can actually find that exhibition on display at the Queens Historical Society, located in Flushing, New York, for museum um, tour guides. You can actually see it on Tuesday, Saturday, and Sunday. That's when it's open to the public. I believe from, like, 2.30 to 5.30. Um, and you can find out more details also on their website about the exhibition. It will be on display starting from February 8th, 2020, until December 29th, 2020. Um, let's see. What else can I tell you that is amazing about me? So, you know, one of the things that I do want to say, first of all, is that propelling uh, these actions history to the forefront for me um, is specifically monumental for students, scholars, historians of fashion. Um, I find that when fashion is completely not only practical where it is inclusive in name, but it's actually inclusive in practice. And so I think that when you see someone like Lee Jackson, you see his history and what makes 
Dave Jackson incredible. It's not necessarily what he was designing, how he was designing, um, but it's really his resilience and how he was penetrating the industry in so many different ways, forms, and fashions. Um, so, like, his work he did for celebrities. You know, he created for um, Sabrina Bikini Lid, for Ali Nadeel, for Lisa Zandos, Diane Carroll, uh, the names are endless. So you'll get to see a lot of that within the exhibition to learn more about his costume design history. And the fact that he's doing that he was always doing costume design, even in Paris. He made costumes for films in Paris, for operas in Paris. <laughs> you know, he actually developed garments for Alvin Ailey uh, when they did a Broadway play celebrating Steve Ellington. It's just, you know, his history is just beyond to me that I feel like everyone can know about Dave Jackson historically and that he's important to American history, Black history, French history, um, and fashion history. He is embedded in all of these different forms of history, and we still know his name. You know, my favorite part about this interview wasn't just learning about Jay Jackson. Jay Jackson was an amazing designer who's contributed so much to American history, to French history, to fashion history, and to black history. And it's a shame that with all of his accomplishments, a man who worked as the head of Jean-Louis Charrier, who worked as the head of Pierre Cardin's American label, who was a costume designer for so many iconic uh, television shows like Sabrina the Teenage Witch and Ally McBeal. It really is a shame how he has been erased from history. What I found inspiring, though, is not just the life of Jay Jackson, but also the work of Rachel Fenderson. Now, here we have a woman, a designer, uh, who went to pursue fashion and not just fashion for her own well-being and to further her own career, but to contribute to the industry by reintroducing a figure who deserves the recognition and deserves a celebration for all of his work. And because of Rachel's work, you know, I can now Google and find more information about Jay Jackson. There's an exhibition that on his life and that's something that did not exist before as someone who was constantly working to share the stories of black contributors in fashion people who have been erased from fashion history I find what she does invigorating and it certainly inspires and charges me so I just wanted to share my little inspirational moment for the day so for those of you out there who have a dream or desire to make an impact I want you to look at Rachel's work I want you to look at Jay's work I want you to look at the work of all of the wonderful people that I've discussed on these episodes and know that your dreams are valid and that you can do it and you have all of us rooting for you all of us backing you and we are going to do the work to make sure that your name is recorded in history and that you aren't forgotten uh, and now that the mushy stuff is over, <laughs> as always, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Black Fashion History Podcast. Make sure to connect with Rachel online. Her ad is Rachel E-X-T. That's R-A-C-H-E-L-E-X-T. And if you're in New York or will be in New York sometimes this year, head over to the Queens Historical Society and check out her exhibition on Jay Jackson. You'll be able to contextualize everything that we talked about in this episode. You'll be able to see his sketches, read 
some articles and learn more about him and his life. If you're the type of person that likes to check the description of the podcast, do that and I'll link some videos, articles, and all of the good stuff that Rachel sent over to me so you can have that information. But it really isn't any substitute for going to check out the exhibition. So put that on your to-do list, on your bucket list for this year. Before December comes, go to New York and check it out. And of course, join me again next week for another Black Fashion History installment. Bye!